I think that the everybody you should encourage, you know, Ron Brown. Ron Brown has been a dear brother and friend since I've lived here. And he's loaned me so many wonderful books that are getting back to you this week, by the way. And um, loaned me so many wonderful books. But he has been a slight bit, well, no, that's not true. I need to be honest. He's been very critical of my tie choices throughout the last four years. You know, the colorful ones that I like and all that. Understandably so, okay. But I think that a, a very fitting gift would be for the church to get Ron this tie. This tie. Now you can, it's your choice. You can put his picture on it or you can get it exactly like this one and give it to him if you like. I don't know. <laughs> when he had a cold, yeah. He'd hang it in the house to keep the mice away, he says. My goodness. I will tell you, Lenore was a little freaked out yesterday because she's gotten used to a couple things in Michigan. You know, yes, there's winter and winter and more winter. But we don't have very many bugs in Michigan. And she said, it just hit her yesterday. We're going back to bugs, aren't we? Yeah, I said, yeah, baby, lots of bugs. Now, the snakes, we called the people we're purchasing the house from down there yesterday. Get work out some things, you know, the, the transition timing and all that. And um, so Lenore and I are on the speakerphone talking to the lady. And I said, um, so my wife's a little concerned about the snakes. Uh, do y'all have a lot of snakes? Oh, no, we don't see more than one a week or... <laughs> And when the home inspector came and did the home inspection on our new place, he got down in the crawl space. It's a crawl space house. He got down in the crawl space, and he came back out, and she was joking and said, oh, yeah, he was such a character. He said, yeah, your crawl space looks good except for all the varmints. And she said, what kind of varmints? He said, well, there's raccoons, and there's rats, and there's snakes. And he might have said alligators. I'm not sure. But... And, but he was kidding, you know. She said, oh, and I said, oh, well, at least they aren't in the crawl space because he was kidding. She said, no, that's only happened twice. <laughs> yeah, lizards too. She said, we got lots of lizards though. She said, just make sure you have a bunch of cats for the snakes. So now don't, please, please, if you come and visit, the Waterford room is upstairs. So no, <laughs> no worries, no worries. So that is wonderful. You should feel so blessed. Michigan, almost bug-free, almost snake-free. Now, I say that to some of you Michigander, lifetime Michigander. You say, we have a lot of bugs. You don't know the definition of a lot of bugs. Like when there's so many when you're driving, you have to use your windshield wipers. I mean, that's a lot of bugs. So pray for us with the bugs and the snakes and the gators. No, I don't think we'll have any gators. Roaches the size of, yeah, big, big roaches, yeah. All right, we are in our final class on Christian evidences, and we've been talking about evidence of the resurrection. And last week, we discussed the apostles and the evidence of the resurrection from them. I'm going to close this out with just a few comments on the power of the apostles' testimony. 
The power of the apostles' testimony to the evidence of Christ's resurrection is important in three ways. First of all, their number. Usually, one witness of reliable character is sufficient to confirm a claim. When, you, when prosecutors are trying to prosecute a crime, they do not need 12 witnesses. They typically, one eyewitness credible. Now, the defense will often try to make that witness seem not credible. But if that witness is credible, and it's a, a single eyewitness, that is the gold standard of evidence, right? Even in our judicial system. So what if you have two or three or four or five or more eyewitnesses? I mean, that just multiplies it exponentially. Well, the number of the apostles, since usually one witness is sufficient, Jesus did not have one witness. Jesus had 12 eyewitnesses, and then he had multitudes of others that saw as well, but 12 that were right there all the time for three and a half years, and that were right there that encountered the risen Christ face to face. They touched him. They spoke with him. They embraced him after he was dead. That's a powerful, powerful aspect of the apostles' um, testimony. In any court, this would be sufficient evidence, more than sufficient, beyond sufficient. Then there is, of course, their unity. Unity of agreement among all witnesses leads to the greatest credibility of a claim. So if you did have a court case and you had two witnesses that say they saw the same thing, saw this event, but they tell two different stories, then you don't, then either one of them is, is not credible or both of them are not credible. And the one casts reasonable doubt upon the evidence of the other, right? That's what, that's what takes place. I mean, we've seen this, I remember years and years ago when, when the O.J. Simpson trial was going on. And I was intrigued by that, listening to it on the radio and watching it on television. And, and the problem there was, remember, that glove that wouldn't fit. Because the narrative that was being told by the witnesses didn't, it clashed with another piece of evidence. And that was probably the crucial piece of evidence that produced reasonable doubt in that case. Because the evidence clashed with other evidence. When it comes to the apostles, we're talking about a unified, unified story. Their evidence, their agreement, their witness is the same. Since the apostles' accounts, teachings, and doctrines 100% agree, does that not give absolute credibility to the evidence of the resurrection? In other words, you don't see an account by these men who were there. You don't see one letter saying one thing and another letter saying something else. There's harmony and agreement between them. And then, not only their number and their unity, but the evidence of their lives. The lives of the apostles remain consistent with their original count, regardless of criticism, regardless of persecution, and regardless of even their death. True witnesses stick to their story. 
They don't waver. They don't change. These men didn't just live a year or two after Christ's resurrection. For the next 20 plus years, they were traveling all over the world and preaching the same thing. And they were persecuted. They were beaten. They were stoned. And uh, and 11 of the 12 were murdered. And not one recanted or changed the story. That's a powerful evidence. It's a powerful evidence. All right, so today, as we close out this class, our final lesson has to do with the evidence of Christ's resurrection from what I think is the greatest evidence, in my opinion, and that is the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So I'm going to hand out a few verses, if you'll take those for me. He'll take Galatians 1, 11 through 14, here. Um, Acts 7, 58 through chapter 8, verse 1. Don, will you take that one for me? It's Acts 7, 58 through 8, verse 1. Um, Acts 8, verse 3. Take that one too, if you don't mind, Don, since you'll be right there. And then Acts 26, 10. We'll take that one for us. Courtney, that's fine. Acts 26, 10. Mario, how about Acts 9, 20 through 21? Acts 9, 20 through 21. And then someone else, Acts 22, verse 4. Okay, right here. Acts 26, verse 9, right over here. Acts 22, verse 3. Who had 22, verse 4? You did take verse 3 when we get there, too. So you'll read them at two different times. Um, Who had Acts 26? Did we do that one yet? Yeah, 26, 10. We assigned that one out. Courtney, you'll also have Acts 26, verse 12, okay? When we get to that one. And that's what we got for today. Okay, so Paul, who would become the Apostle Paul, he makes his defense before King Agrippa in Acts 26. And he uses as one of his primary proofs the life that he used to live and the change that he had undergone. And he even says it in a term, terminology that says, well, Everybody knows this about me. I mean, it's common knowledge. We have already discussed the incredible change in the other apostles at Pentecost, but even more incredible is the amazing change of Saul of Tarsus. The story of Saul's conversion is recorded four times in the New Testament. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, and Galatians chapter 1. The fact that Jesus had been crucified before Paul's conversion is an undisputed fact of history. Saul of Tarsus didn't know Jesus Christ in his time during his ministry. He met Jesus Christ only after Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. Now just let that sink in for a minute. This is the greatest apostle that people call him, the great apostle, the great missionary, who, I mean, half of our New Testament was written by him. That Christian faith has been rooted in the doctrines that he promoted and shared in his ministry for the last 2,000 years. He had devoted his life to destroying this, what he thought was false messiah, who that he believed was dead and his apostles were running with this thing. 
He devoted his life to stamping out what he thought was a heretical religion. Devoted his life to it. And then, just like that, he becomes completely and utterly zealous and committed to the very cause he despised. Now, when does that ever happen in life? I mean, we've all had folks that we've influenced, right, towards the Lord. But I would dare say that most of us have not had conversion stories of people we've influenced for the Lord that hated the Lord and were completely and utterly bent on the destruction of Christianity and the faith. Does that ever happen? Now, yes, you have people like John Clayton who was an atheist, but he was an atheist intellectually because he just didn't see, and then he was studying and he thought Christianity was silly and all of that, but then he studied his way into faith. That happens. But we're not talking about that. Saul of Tarsus was an enemy. He hated Jesus Christ and hated everything he stood for. Just like that, he's converted. That doesn't happen, ever. People that have hardened their heart to things, people have to be receptive to the gospel, correct? I mean, let's be very clear. The Apostle Paul's faith was tremendous. I mean, no one in here would probably think we have, I mean, I'm not quite yet to the place where I'll say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Or, or, you know, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to share in his suffering. I mean, that's a very, very mature perspective as a Christian. But let's be very clear. Saul of Tarsus was only converted because he saw the Lord face to face. His faith was not, it wasn't kindled in the way that yours was. Right? In some ways, your faith that would, I mean, we, I tell you this all the time. Don't discount the time in which we live or the power of your faith to please the Lord. In some ways, your faith is more powerful than what caused Paul. I mean, he had to see the Lord to be converted. No one in here has seen the Lord. I mean, through other people and, you know, those kind of ways, but not actually physically seeing the Lord. But that was the only thing that could do it with him. Right? Because nobody in this room has been an enemy. Hated the Lord and the gospel. Those folks just aren't converted. That's hard ground that no seed can penetrate. Unless you got the plow of seeing miraculously the living Savior. It's just an incredible evidence. So, Saul of Tarsus. It's recorded four times in the New Testament, as we mentioned. So, if Jesus did really appear to him on the road to Damascus, that means Jesus lives. You see, that there's just no way around that. Either it happened, or it did not happen. And I suppose that some would try to argue, well, he was crazy, uh, read what he wrote. He's brilliant. He was not out of his mind. 
Very few have ever tried to suggest that. Why? Because, you know, you don't have to be brilliant to know that the Apostle Paul wasn't crazy. Just read the book of Romans. Just read Philippians. Just read Colossians. Read, I mean, no. And no one at the time thought him that. See what I mean? The people who went to stone him, I mean, there's no writings recorded from the first century of the opponents of the gospel who wrote, well, this crazy man. No. Now, on the day of Pentecost, some people thought that of the apostles, right? But never Saul of Tarsus. He's just, he's just too credible. I mean, he was a brilliant scholar. He went to the Harvard or Yale of his day. He had the best credentials of anybody. He was a Roman citizen. He studied under Gamaliel. He, was, he held a high, high position among the religious leaders of his nation. He wasn't out of his mind. So someone would say, well, maybe he just made it up for influence and power. When he hated the gospel, he just, it dawns on him, you know what, I'll probably get farther if I just embrace this thing that I hate and zealously am trying to destroy. That's illogical. What other explanation is there than he saw the Lord for the first time after the Lord had been killed? That's called resurrected. So, Saul of Tarsus, therefore, Paul uses a three-point argument to prove that Jesus had to have appeared to him because what else could have changed such a man? So the first aspect of this is his fanatical persecution. Notice the description of Paul's persecution from his own lips in Galatians 1, 11 through 14. Now, the key, to me, the key two words there are beyond measure. I persecuted the church beyond measure. Why did he add those two words? Why is that a clarifier there? Because he, he says, I was exceedingly zealous to destroy it. That was his life's purpose, his mission. His destiny, so he thought. And he did it out of absolute pure conscience and faith that he was doing right, that God was pleased with him doing this. Luke draws us a vivid picture of Saul the persecutor. He's part of Stephen's death and an instigator of a great persecution against the church, Acts 7, 58 through chapter 8, verse 1. Then they cast him out of 
the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man Saul. And as they were stoning Jesus, he called out, Lord, Lord, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Now let me ask you this. Did seeing this, Pete, I mean, Pete, Stephen makes a very, I guess you might say, gracious plea as he's, his life is ended by being stoned to death. I mean, we talk about terrible ways to die, but that, I just can't even fathom that. I mean, they just pelt you with rocks until you, until you are no more. How miserable would that be? Well, Stephen, at the end of this, he cries out, Lord, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. They don't know what they do. And some might argue, well, maybe that had an impact on Saul because he saw that. And Well, no. He could see a man who is so gracious and so loving that he, in his last words, asked the Lord to forgive the people killing him. And Saul approves of his execution. It didn't dent his heart at all. Because in the very next chapter, what's he doing? Going to Damascus to destroy the church. He, he felt no pity on Stephen. None. He, he didn't feel anything except hate. Saul's a bad guy. Now, he's got a clear conscience. He thinks he's doing the righteous, vindictive work of God. But he doesn't feel any compassion on Stephen. Even when the man, you know, who wouldn't feel a little bit at that, right? Like, oh, what have we done? Or, oh, maybe this guy wasn't so bad. He doesn't feel any of that. Heart like stone to this blasphemer. See, that's what he thought he was. A blasphemy. So he's calling out to this false messiah. That probably made him more upset. Don't you think? So, I mean, the intensity with which he participates and approves of, the text says. He's, he's a, a horrendous persecutor of God's people. From that time, Saul began violently entering into disciples' homes and dragging them off to prison. Acts chapter 8, verse 3. When Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He entered their homes and he dragged them off. And then chapter 26, Acts 26, verse 10. He sentenced them to death. I actually heard somebody one time say, well, Paul, the text doesn't say he was a murderer or that he killed anybody. Yes, it does. I mean, if you're the guy who pulls the lever, I mean, you've got some culpability there, right? I mean, he's the guy who cast his vote. He's the one that made the decision. 
And without his decision, I mean, the implication of he casts the vote. I mean, he's the one who says guilty. He, he's responsible for their deaths. And he says it from his own lips. I mean, how much that have been? Have you ever thought about how many times Paul met people in the church who had lost a family member to him? You know that had to happen. Don't you remember the church in Jerusalem was very, very hesitant to accept him? In fact, Peter had to kind of get pretty direct to get them to accept him. Is it any wonder why? I mean, it may have been some people that he had been in their home before, dragging them away or their spouse away. I think that's why he's so emotional. At least you can hear the emotion on the page when he writes things like, was formerly a blasphemer and an insolent man. And so don't ever think when you look to your past and wish you could redo things, that you're alone. How must Paul have felt that? So all he, he did the only thing he could do, the only thing any of us can do with the past, and that is be better in the future. Be a different person than we were. And look what he was able to do. So we have to remember that the past, it doesn't define what a person can be for the Lord. But they indeed, they struggled. They struggled with him. And any of us would have. It buzzed in my pocket. I wanted to make sure it didn't go off. Okay, let's stop here for a second and get any comments, questions that you have. It's my last day. You gotta, you gotta say something. <laughs> Don't let make me leave thinking that you weren't paying attention. There you go. Thank you. It takes a visitor to do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. What'd you say? Yeah, it's like, yeah, why, why don't people, don't they know that's not good for them? Well, didn't you? All right. Yeah, that's something. Anyone else? Done. Well, and I think that's why Paul was the perfect apostle to the Gentile. He doesn't spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. He doesn't. Because he used to spend a lot of time in Jerusalem. And so, I mean, he's not the right. Peter and the others are the right ones for the Jerusalem church. He'll go periodically. And, I mean, he, 
goes back there in between missionary journeys, but it's a short stay. His ministry is out among the Gentiles in the far reaches of the world because, I mean, it was, it was going to be hard for him. And you're right, I think it is hard for him to forgive himself. And the only way he can cope is he gives it his everything to be what he can be. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yeah, I mean, so many, I mean, I was raised in the church, so I haven't had that experience. Of course, there's been a lot of, uh, even those of us who are raised in the church, we have a lot that we regret, you know, in our life, because we're all sinners. But yeah, sometimes folks who come from the world, I remember in Idaho, we had a lady who was converted and baptized, and man, she was, she was something. Becky was her name, and Becky... She was the sweetest, most devoted, godly woman. I mean, she was at every service. She was trying to raise her daughter in the Lord, even though her husband was at first not a Christian, and then he was a very on again, off again. I mean, he still struggled with the world. But she came out of the world, and I mean, she was a Wiccan. You know what that is? It's a witch. She was a witch. That was her religion. And her profession was she was a dancer. And I don't mean ballet. Okay? That's what she did. I mean, that's pretty extreme, but it don't compare to Saul of Tarsus. But she would use that sometimes when she's talking, especially folks who I just don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can be good enough. And and she would say, well, you can't be good enough, but the Lord can make you better. Let me tell you how I know. So, yeah. And some of you, I mean, you look back, you were in the world. I mean, Head over heels, fully in the world, right? But the Lord can change people. He can change people. That's why we need to, I mean, if people have hardened their hearts completely, then the truth is, is you're not probably going to be able to convert a Saul of Tarsus if there's one of those in your life. But folks who just simply have been fully immersed in sin, don't ever write people off because they're so bad. Don't write them off. Because, I mean, he says, remember in 1 Corinthians, he talks about all the terrible things, the blasphemers and the, you know, the, the idolaters and the, what's some of the other, the homosexuality, and he talks about adulterers, and he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were cleansed, you were sanctified. The church is made up 100% of recovering sinners. 
That's all it is. And, you know, we, that's why it's ever be having an attitude of holier than thou or uh, better than. No, no, no. We, we are, I mean, we are special. We're the elect. We're the chosen. We're his people. And the church is a royal priesthood. But we're not special based upon, we're special because we won the lottery. Okay? We're special because the Lord made us special. We're not special because we deserve to be special. Right? And so that is a humbling thing when you're dealing with people in the world because they could be special too. But it ain't because we deserve it. And that's the imperative truth of grace. It isn't because we deserve it. Any other comments? Yes. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think he had a little bit of fame doing what he did. He said he rose to the highest echelons of of power, and yeah, he was he was well known. I mean, I they didn't have newspapers at the time, but I'm sure if they had, his name would have been in it a lot. You know, he was front page news. So yeah, the name change helped however it didn't help much in jerusalem because people knew what he looked like there you know and he's i don't think paul was ever tried to necessarily avoid it but i don't think he necessarily advertised this all the time either you know you don't see in his sermons except when he's before agrippa because that's important he's in he's in jerusalem before agrippa he needs to i mean it's a powerful point to a teaching point, but typically you don't see him just dragging this out. He's not telling his personal story in every sermon because some, in some circumstances that might be a hindrance rather than a help. That's a good point. Okay. Oh, yes, Bill. In the Quran. In their, in their, uh, you know, their, their so it's, it's an interesting correlation. 
You know, it's funny because Christianity, it's just so common to us because we we we're very intimately knowledgeable of Christianity and we live in a nation that has been all of our lives and the lives of our parents and grandparents and all of that. But Christianity is so different because of grace. You know, the religions that man invents don't have grace in them. Because that doesn't make sense to man. I mean, it, honestly, if you're inventing a religion and you don't have the Bible as a background, you would, you would never come up with that because no one ever did. I mean, you look at the polytheistic religions of Greece and Rome and, and Egypt and Mesopotamia and, and you, you get gods who kind of are like humans but more powerful. You know, that's what their gods were like. So you make them happy by doing and all of those religions are completely doing what you do. And you'll be rewarded for what you do and you'll be punished for what you do. You do realize Christianity, yes, I know we talk about obedience a lot, but at the root, Christianity is not a do religion. It's grace. We, now, we do because of grace, right? And grace causes you, the only acceptable response to real grace is real gratitude, which causes you to do. But nobody's going to heaven based upon what they do. And everybody would go to hell based upon what they do. If it's based upon what you do. I mean, that's, and that's so remarkably different than every other religion. I mean, you can look at Hinduism and Buddhism and, and you can look at all the pagan religions around the world. I mean, there still are those religions and voodoo and other things around the world. And it's just so remarkably different. And I think... That in and of itself is a powerful evidence to the, to the reality of Christianity. Saul's dedication to his work was so well known that after his conversion, the disciples were amazed that he could be brought to Christ at all. Acts, 20, Acts chapter 9, excuse me, 20 through 21. So they were amazed. And then Acts 22, verse 4. Uh, just verse 4 right now. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. So he is intending to deal a death blow to Christianity, and he intends to stop it forever. That was his intent. In Saul, we see a picture of this fanatical persecutor who is spurred on by the religious conviction that what he's doing was right. Acts 26, verse 9. I barely thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He felt he had to. He was pure in his conscience in that. So did he go beyond what one would expect of another who simply opposed another religion? Most certainly he did. He went the extra mile. How do you deal with such a fanatic? Is it likely that such a person would be one to the cause that he is seeking to destroy? Therefore, 
How did this change take place? Surely he did not listen to those heretical Christians. He didn't listen to Stephen when he was asking God to forgive him. He just made him even more devoted. And the Jews would not have swayed him because the Jews wanted it to be destroyed as well. So who could he have met to cause him to change? There's only one answer. The Lord. That's who he... That's the only one he could have met that could have caused him to change. He had prominence among the Jews. Acts 22, verse 3. Okay, so he's a scholar, a very well-respected, very well-credentialed scholar. He is financially well-to-do beforehand because he either had access to temple funds. I mean, he had, a, he had a Jerusalem temple visa card at the very least. Or he, y'all know I'm meaning metaphorically, right? Or he was personally well-off enough to finance this police action. Either way, he had financial backing. He was socially accepted. He said he, had, he was born a Roman citizen. That's the highest tier of social standing except for the senatorial, equestrian, and of course the emperor. Those classes were the highest of Roman. But in the world, only a very, very small pe- group of people were even in the Roman class because they were Roman citizens. He was so, so he was socially brought up with great social status, and he had that among the Jews as well. And then he is in a great position of power, Acts 26, verse 12. Saul was like 007. He had a license to kill. I mean, he, he was given all authority. I mean, he had the badge in his wallet. Right? I mean, that's where you carry it, right, Mario? The badge in his wallet. Because he had all authority. Governmental, official authority. What would change a man like that? He gave it all up, didn't he? Financially? Yeah, he became a tent-making preacher. Did he give up the social standing? Well, in those circles, for sure. He gave it all up. Just like that. There's only one reason that can happen. And it's a great, powerful evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank y'all. I've enjoyed this class and every other that came before it. Love you.